0: If it was some kind of a random thing that nobody could have predicted, then of course it, there's nothing to learn from
1: it. There's almost a question of why would you question yourself if you are right.
2: This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the
3: world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. Today, in episode 84 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Tori Howes from Oregon State University and Edgar Kozel from Pontifica Universidad Catalica de Chile about their research, which finds that narcissists rarely, if ever, learn from their mistakes. Because true narcissists refuse to believe they're capable of making one. Before we begin, we'd like to dedicate this episode to Roger Kaufman, who passed away this week. Roger was Ryan and my major professor while we were completing our doctorates at Florida State University, though that far understates the many important roles that he played in our lives. He was our mentor, our teacher, and most of all, our friend. Maybe the most important thing I learned from Roger was to always ask, what's the one thing I should have asked, but didn't? We'll miss him dearly. Now, here's Tori Howes and Edgar Causal.
1: Hello, I'm Tori. I was a first-generation college student. So both of my parents were active duty military, and I wound up getting my undergrad from the same place that was right in my hometown. So I went to University of Central Missouri. I had no idea what I wanted to do, but my parents knew that I should not go into the military because I didn't like to follow orders. So they encouraged me to go on for more education because I was good at that. So I went on and I got my master's at Missouri State University in psychology, and I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but my parents were still sure that I should not go in the military because I kept considering that as an option. So they encouraged me to just keep going with what I'm good at, which was the book smarts, as they said. So I went on and got my doctorate in industrial and organizational psychology from Texas A&M. And at that point I finally figured out, I agreed I really was decent at this. I enjoyed teaching, I loved the research. So I have been in academia after a small stint at consulting in the Chicago area. And then I was at Kansas State University for quite a while until I came to Oregon State University.
0: Hi, I'm Ed Kozl. I'm from Chile, South America. So the Chilean system is a, a bit different education system, and it's a bit different from the U.S. And so I started studying computer science at the beginning for a couple of years. And then I I was sick of it, and I started studying psychology initially because I thought that I was interested in cognitive psychology, so, you know, artificial intelligence and how you could use my computer science background and study how people think and so on. But then I became a bit more practical, and then I thought about doing something related to human resource. After getting my degree, I started working in the HR department in a retail company. And then after a couple of years, I was sick of it. <laughs> and then I, I wanted to go back to academia somehow. And then I became interested in industrial organizational psychology. And so I became interested in, in on the one hand, in studying individual differences like narcissism but also judgment and decision making. So how people uh, make decisions, what are the uh, biases uh, and so on. So it's very related to behavioral economics. A
2: 1975 article titled, I Knew It Would Happen, documented the first work to directly test the phenomenon that we now call hindsight bias. In their study, the researchers asked people to judge the likelihood of various possible outcomes of trips then President Nixon was about to take to Beijing and Moscow. After Nixon's visits were completed, the participants were brought back and asked to recall their own predictions, as well as whether or not they thought that each event had in fact occurred. Most people overestimated the predictions they initially assigned for events that they believed took place, and underestimated these predictions for those which they thought hadn't. We began our conversation with Ed and Tori by asking them to describe how they describe what hindsight
0: bias is. Hindsight bias is whenever after an event occurs, you think that it was obvious or that you could have predicted all along. If you're thinking about a soccer game, like before the event, before the game, you're not sure. or Maybe you have some preference, but there's a lot of uncertainty. And after like, a soccer team wins, you say, oh, yeah, that, that, that was obvious. I mean, of course it would happen, right? And yeah, so in the context of our research, we focus especially on, on hiring decisions. And so before, when you're deciding between which candidate w- would perform better, uh, you may have like some doubts about that. But then after the fact, after you see them perform as, oh, yeah, of course, of course he he or she performed better because she did it great in, in her or his interview and so on.
1: Yeah, I, I always think about it. So Ed uses soccer because he's from Chile. and But I always I, I love the whole March Madness and was devastated that we couldn't have March Madness again so that I could beat Edgar in our bracket. But um, I think about the hindsight bias with everybody fills out their brackets and you pick who you want to go to the final four and to, to win it all. And after the fact, after some team wins, people start to say, oh, I knew it all along. I knew that team was going to go all the way. And yet they didn't put it in their bracket. right and you just kind of think well if you knew it all along you would have put it in your bracket moron but they don't that's that's what i think of as hindsight bias
0: well and i think americans have the the monday morning quarterback right yeah we don't have we don't have that here in chile because because we we don't have quarterbacks here in chile but anyway (laughs) so the, the the hindsight bias i think it's related to learning or perceived learning which is what we measured in our paper this is an example that I give my students. So let's say you're, you're studying for like a math test, and you're you have a, a set of exercises and you're practicing them, and you have the solution, and then you you look at the the math problem and then you look at the solution and you say oh, probably yeah I could have done that right, and so you don't study much because you could have done that anyway. But then you, you you're confronted with a test where, where there's no solution, right? and then you cannot solve it. So that's the problem with saying, oh yeah, of course this would happen because you put less effort in trying to think
3: about what could have happened. And so that's how it's related to to less learning. and Ed's study sought to determine if people who exhibited greater narcissism would also more readily fall victim to hindsight bias. So Ryan and I were interested in hearing how they characterized what narcissism is.
1: So when we think of a narcissist as the person that quintessential the world revolves around me and, and they, they think that they're, they have these grandiose views about themselves. They think they're better than others on every element. Um, they don't want to seek advice from other people because they don't trust. You know, they, they, they're more incompetent um, than they see themselves. Right. Um, from a clinical perspective, if you're looking at the DSM, there's an element of low self-esteem in there. And what we're looking at is really more about that um, over, almost overconfidence and over arrogance, if you will. And it lies on this continuum of, of self-perception.
0: Yeah. So, so the difference between narcissism and like the NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, is that narcissism is a continuum, right? It's like a personality trait and, and everybody has a little bit of it, maybe. It's like a, a bell curve, a normal distribution in the population of, of narcissism. It's not necessarily like a disorder or something necessarily bad. And probably you need to have some a, a little bit of narcissism in order to deal with life. But the, the trademark of narcissism is like self-enhancement. It's like this view of, of feeling superior to others. Uh, motivation for constant self-affirmation.
1: Yeah, and it's not like it's just narcissists who do it. There is this self-protection element. If we didn't take credit for things we got right, or we blamed ourselves too harshly on everything we got wrong, we'd all be walking around needing Prozac. It is a self-protective thing, but we just see it to an extreme amount with narcissists. And I think that's, that's a really important point too. The
2: influence of hindsight bias on some people's ability to learn from their successes and failures was central to Tory and Ed's project. And this type of learning can come about by what they refer to as should counterfactual thinking. This includes such after the fact thoughts as, I should have done something different. They contrasted this against could counterfactual thinking, which is epitomized by the now all too familiar phrase, no one could have seen this coming and nothing could have been done. Doug and I were curious what the benefits and pitfalls of these modes of thinking can be.
1: A key point really is this notion of the should counterfactual thinking that after the fact, you know, I should have done this, I should have done that. And that's what we're finding that narcissists aren't really doing which is the questioning themselves after, you know, if they get something right, they're not saying, oh, what should I have done differently? Because why would they do anything differently? They got it right. And even if they got something wrong, they're not thinking they should have done something different. And so they're not questioning themselves because they don't think that's necessary. And then it, it leads to even perceived learning isn't happening. Does that sound about right, Ed?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the key, the key issue, What we argue is uh, should counterfactual thinking, which is, uh, I should have done this. So I do poorly in a test, oh, I should have studied better, or I should have done this or that. Or like you make a hiring decision and the person you hired doesn't work very well, you you say, oh, I should have put more emphasis in in some aspect of the decision-making process.
1: Right. And we're saying you should even say should, even if you got the, the right decision, it's sort of a, you didn't make a, pr- you might've had, you might've gotten lucky.
0: Yeah. So one thing is that could have happened. And one a different thing is to think about, it should have happened. In the case of should, uh, it means that you ought to have done that in order to have a better outcome. Could is, uh, it could have happened. And it's like a, Preconditioned to think about should, but in the case of should, is is more of of a maybe a moral aspect,
1: right? There's almost there. There's almost a control element, um, and that if you should have done something, it's almost like you're at fault because you didn't. Whereas could almost implies that there's other possibilities, but there's not that ought to. There's not that need, and so that is even more important when we're talking about narcissists because the should is all about what you ought to have done or what you had in your power to have done and you didn't do it. So there's almost a blame if you got it wrong, it was that you should have done something different. Whereas could has probably less of that blame component and more of a, well, yep, that was another possibility.
3: Tori and Ed found that due to their exaggerated self-enhancement and tendencies towards self-protection, narcissists show stronger hindsight bias when their predictions are accurate, as well as a sort of reverse hindsight bias when their predictions are inaccurate. And in their paper, they elaborate on a few well-known cases of narcissistic behavior getting in the way of learning. So Ryan and I wanted to hear more about some of these infamous examples. We'll hear what they had to say after this short break. This
2: episode is brought to you by Altmetric. At Altmetric, we help researchers track and analyze the online activity around scholarly research outputs. And if you like passing science, you may also enjoy our podcast series, The Altmetric Podcast. Join me, Lucy Goodchild, as we explore the science stories that are being discussed the most online, so you can find out why. You can find our show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Now, back to Passing Science.
3: Here again are Tory Howes and Edgar Kozel.
0: Yeah, so this research started like nine years ago. Trump was around, but it was not as as, as a huge figure as he is today. But I have to say that... I personally think that it's a very good example of of narcissism, even if you like him or not, you may like him, but but still you have to recognize that the guy has some narcissistic traits. I mean, there's no deny about that, right? So one example that we cite in our paper is that he stated in 2016 or 15 that he had predicted the Iraq war better than anybody. And if you go back to 2004, I mean, he was not that sure, to be honest. So, yeah, so that's a good example of the hindsight bias and the person who might have some high degree of narcissism. (laughs) So what we argue is that people, when they are right, they exhibit some hindsight bias, especially narcissists. But when they're wrong, they do the opposite, which is like nobody could have predicted this. So after you write, you tend to say, oh, yeah, of course, of course I predicted this before. We give another example in our paper in which he said that it would be a very easy thing to, to make a deal on healthcare, But then he realized it was difficult. And so he said, nobody knew healthcare would be could be so complicated, right? So it's like a reversal of saying, hey, I didn't, but nobody could have done that which is like a reversal of. The interesting thing is that if you have that mindset, you may not learn from things, right? Because it's like every time you're right, you say, oh yeah, of course I was sure that would, that would happen. So whatever this event was, I, I don't have much to learn from it. But then when you're wrong, you say, hey, n- uh, nobody could have predicted this. And then you cannot learn from that event either, because if if it was some kind of a random thing that nobody could have predicted, then of course, it, there's nothing to learn from it.
1: There's almost a question of why would you question yourself if you were right? Why would you ask this should, or you know what should I have done differently if you were right? So that's why we thought, well, prediction accuracy moderates the relationship between should counterfactual thinking and hindsight bias. You know, so we have um, a lot of thinking and theory that went in.
2: As Tori just mentioned, should counterfactual thinking mediate the relationship between narcissism and hindsight bias? They also found that this mediation is itself moderated by prediction accuracy, such that the relationship is negative when predictions are accurate, but positive when inaccurate. Doug and I asked Tori and Ed how it is that they describe this type of moderated mediation model to others.
1: I I guess I always think about um, with a mediation is The mediator is telling you why something is related to the other thing. So with narcissism and hindsight bias, if it's mediated by should counterfactual thinking, we're saying why is narcissism and hindsight bias related? And then a moderator just kind of tells you under what conditions. Is it high or low or right positive or negative? That's how I usually conceptualize it.
0: Right. So one mediator could be students who are more conscientious. They, They have better grades. And so why? Well, because people who are more conscientious, they study more. And so conscientiousness is related to, to our studying and then our studying is related to uh, better grades. And, and so that's the why and that's a mediator. And so a moderator is an, under which condition the relationship could be different. And so you, you can say, well, talent and earnings, for example. And I have some data showing. Well, this is, I well, this is not a, a finished paper, but so we find that talent, whatever we define talent, it's more strongly related to earnings for men than for women, and and so that means that for a person who is a male uh, who has more talent, they tend to earn more compared to women who have more talent, and they don't earn as much as men. And there's several reasons because that happened, because they may be in different jobs, or this might be an issue of gender discrimination. And whatever the reason is that the relationship between, again, talent and earnings is different for women and for men, and that's a, a
3: moderator. That they conducted several other experiments not included in the final manuscript. Torian Ed's article describes the results from four research studies related to narcissism, should counterfactual thinking, and hindsight bias, as well as how they impact or are impacted by the accuracy of people's predictions and perceived learning. They tested the various hypotheses by seeing if participants would apply self-critical thinking about what they should have done or what they should have known, as well as whether narcissists would tend to do so less often. As their experiments involved an array of international participants who were both recruited in person as well as online via the crowdsourcing platform Prolific, Ryan and I were interested in hearing more about what led them to seek out so diversified a sample of respondents.
1: We wanted to have the generalizability. And so we had graduate students, MBA students from Chile as a sample. We had undergraduate students from United States. We had... The prolific sample, which really the use of prolific versus MTurk, it's, it's sort of one of those just maybe personal findings that better data quality from prolific versus MTurk in terms of just, just what we get on the output side of things. And maybe it's just a preference. And the snowball sampling, just trying to get, yeah, those, those normal individuals, but get them from anybody. At, at, at a certain point, nobody wants to fill out surveys anymore or do studies, and it almost comes to a desperate times call for desperate measures and begging and pleading or praying in the sense of prolific sometimes it feels just a ridiculous just attempt to get people to answer questions but when they do we're so so happy
0: yeah and i think we used prolific uh, maybe you said this but i was not paying attention thanks uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> also because uh, we we could have a, like a professional sample It was easier with prolific than with mTurk, I think. That was one of the reasons. But every study has its weakness. And so uh, a potential weakness that we have in our studies is that they're not actual decisions, right? These, These are... Uh, experiments so this is in the lab and this is scenarios and so on
1: yeah so so in um, participants were given just this description of some individuals who were going to be hired for a job and they were asked to rate them they were given personality scores some unstructured interview scores handwriting analysis so things that weren't really valuable information as well as stuff that was and they were asked to say who should be hired and then after they made their decision, they were told, oh, actually, you know what? We wound up hiring both, and here's how well they've performed. And in that way, they were either given information that, oh, look, you made the right choice because who you said to hire performed better than the other person. Or they wound up getting something that where their prediction accuracy was wrong. They would have hired the person who actually wound up performing worse.
0: Yeah, so of course, there are some strengths reviewers are worried about how generalizable are our results. And so that's one, one of the reasons, okay, we, we do have scenarios. They're, these are not real decisions, but we have like a wide variety of different people and we all converge into the same results. So even if these are our scenarios, at least we can say that it's not specific to like a you know, Chilean population or, or just undergrads, we had people from, you know, different contexts and we find the same results. So at least from that perspective, we can, we're kind of sure that, that there's internal validity. Psychologists
2: have been interested in measuring narcissism since that initial study from 1975, which I mentioned at the top of the episode. By far, the most common method for assessing narcissism is to use standardized self-report measures. In other words, the types of personality questionnaires that the field of psychology is famous for. Since Ed and Tori use this method as well, Doug and I were interested in hearing more about how they weighed their options as to which measure to use.
0: The most well-known measure is the npi 40, Narcissistic Personality Inventory, 40 which is the number of items and by the time we were conducting these studies and again we started this like eight or nine years ago so this was the most uh, accepted measure of of normal narcissism there are others like the npi 14 i think or 15 and then others that are newer it's not like a one to five Likert scale. It's You have to choose between two potential behaviors and thinkings and so on. There are some psychometric properties that have been questioned by some researchers. On the other hand, it's very complete. It has 40 questions and so on. So within the paper, we talk about narcissists and non-narcissists because it's easier to, to write about it in that way but we we did use a continuum measure and a continuum score. The findings that we have is they were linear. The more narcissism you had, the less should counterfactual thinking you had and so we didn't have like cut scores or whatever. If you have a huge sample you you might detect the, that kind of stuff, but it's harder to to do it with with less people and and again, we have hundred and seventy people or participants per study a bit more, a bit less, and which is fine for detecting the stuff that we were testing. To find nonlinear
3: relationship, you you need a, a bigger sample to do that. In their final study, Torian Ed primed participants to focus on should counterfactual thinking by giving them a sentence unscrambling task. This test was first advocated by John Barge, a Yale social psychologist who published a paper in 1996 with the striking finding that students walked more slowly when they were primed with elderly related words, such as bingo and Florida. As this study has repeatedly failed replication, we were curious about their thoughts about the veracity of such non-conscious priming. In my perspective, It depends on the priming
0: and your dependent variable. If you're telling me that because I'm reminded that I might be old or something and then I'm gonna walk slowly, then I say, "Mm, gee, I'm not sure. I would be kind of... I'm not saying that it didn't happen, right? I'm just saying that that's... this is a huge kind of a leap. But in, in this case, so there's two issues. So first is that Some people that I know and I trust (laughs) uh, conducted experiments. So one is Jochen. So he did a study on regret. And then Lisa Ordoñez and David Welsh, I I know them from Arizona. They did this something on moral standards. And so these primings are, are more into thinking, right? So I might prime you into thinking about moral issues or in our case to think more should counterfactual thinking and and Jochen's case was thinking about regret. And then I asked you to conduct a study and and see if there's like a bias there in the way you're thinking. And so there's, I would say that there's a match between what you're manipulating or priming and then the dependent variable, which is like a a decision or a, a potential bias. And so my problem with the priming literature is that when there's this huge leaps that you're saying that because of you think about, I don't know, like a, a tennis player, you're going to play better tennis or something. I'm kind of more, I'm not saying that they don't happen, but I'm more suspicious... Evidence from their
2: research suggests that people who assess higher-on narcissism are, in fact, less likely to apply should counterfactual thinking when their predictions are wrong, and therefore suffer more greatly from erroneous hindsight bias. Given that Tori and Ed are industrial organizational psychologists, Doug and I were interested in learning what applications they feel that these findings might have in the workplace.
1: I think of it as the after action reviews or those decisions are made. We know the outcomes now go back and check and, and decide, you know, did you do everything that you should have done? What did you do well? What did you not do well? And so encouraging people to consider alternatives, consider what they should have done differently, even if the, the outcome was favorable or in line with their predictions. And it's just after major decisions, do that after action review.
0: Yeah so I I think there you know, from my perspective that there are two things that are linked to our paper. So one is that there's some evidence suggesting that narcissists or people high on narcissism tend to climb easier in organizations in terms of promotions and stuff because they they know how to sell their stuff really well and so on.
1: They're confident, and, yep. right?
0: And and that doesn't mean necessarily that they're good at those tasks, but they're very good at showing uh, that they're good or they're very good. They tend to do well. Right. In we care.
1: want a confident person in an interview. We want right. people to tell us they're good, and why not believe them?
0: Right. And so one direct implication is try to have a, a good performance appraisal system in which you assess not only how confident people are, but also how they do their jobs really well. And if you need confident people, it's fine, but then be aware that, that some type of people have some problems too, right? Uh, so that's one thing. And the other thing I would say related to shoot counterfactual thinking is that if you think about it, it's also related to like having a learning culture within an organization. Learning culture is that, oh, we did well. We did well, but maybe we could have done things better anyway. Even if we did well, let's try to learn from the process, whatever that was, a hiring decision or whatever. And so if you have that learning mindset, you're going to have more should counterfactual thinking because it's like related to thinking, oh, things could have done different. We should have done something different and so on. And so having a learning culture within a team or an organization, I think that's a really good thing for a team or organization to have. That was Tori House and Edgar
2: Cassell discussing their article. When and Why Narcissists Exhibit Greater Hindsight Bias and Less Perceived Learning, co-authored with Alex Jackson and Jochen Reb, and published on June fourth, two 2020 in the Journal of Management. You'll find a link to their paper at parsingscience.org e84, along with transcripts, bonus audio
3: clips, and other materials we discussed during the episode. If you've participated in our 2020 listener survey, thanks! If not, and you've got five to ten minutes to spare, you can do so until the end of the week at parsingscience.org survey. You'll be helping us better understand our listeners and better serve your interests in future episodes. No personally identifiable information is requested or recorded, and you can skip any question you want. Next time, in episode 85 of
2: Parsing Science, we'll talk with Kaisha Jennings from North Carolina State University about her research into what the wildly popular meme, Hot Girl Summer, based on the lyrics by hip-hop phenomenon Megan Thee Stallion, tells us about changes in the ways in which Black women cultivate community in digital spaces.
1: Black women were creating lists. This is what it means to have a hot girl summer. So we saw all this engagement, whether they were trying to remix, to improve, enhance, just kind of speak to what a hot girl summer meant specifically for them. But there was just a lot of engagement in terms of how it's related to our identity.
2: We hope that you'll join us again.